You're listening to Brainwaves on WRBB 104.9 FM. We're your hosts, Gatsby Smith and Jake Willis, broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, and we have a great broadcast for you today. On today's program of Brainwaves, Gatsby Smith talks with Matthew Bowser of Northeastern University as we explore tumultuous years of the 1940s within the state of Burma. And Jake Willis interviews Madison Mittenis, president of Northeastern's Entrepreneurs Club, as the two discuss the life and aspirations of entrepreneurs around the globe. Let's begin. Hi, this is Gasper Smith from Brainwaves on 104.9 WRBB, and I'm joined today by Matthew Bowser of Northeastern University, a specialist in the studies of colonial Burma, pursuing his PhD in history, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to explore in our segment the unique history of Burma during World War II and how it's transformed the country into a very unique place, I think, in world history. And just to begin, let's give our audience just a quick little rundown of colonial Burma leading up to World War II. So basically, I mean, what you need to understand where Burma is at in 1939 when World War II begins, it's been under British rule for about 50, 60 years around the time. I'm not so great with my math, but I know the year (laughs) began in 1885 when formal control was finally established over the entire region Mm -hmm. by the British. Uh, And it was actually considered to be a province of India, uh, which was just next door. Uh, And the British just considered... Let's just make it an administrative province. We'll just put it as part of the rest of the Indian Empire, and then they figured that would be fine. That did end up causing a lot of issues mm-hmm. with the country, but uh, the thing to keep in mind is that Burma did not like being under British rule, and it also did not like being under Indian administration. So the Burmese were kind of a minority within their own nation is what you are saying. Exactly. Yeah, and they hated it. And I mean, basically... The British did a lot of work in bringing an industrial-style economy to Burma. Before that, it was mainly agricultural, mainly, uh, I want to even say feudal, almost, if we could think about it analogously, even if we understand that it wasn't strictly the same thing that was in Europe. But we can think about it that way. Um, And basically, once they brought this industrial economy, you know, factories, shipping, uh, major production of rice and teak and oil and things like that, uh, they Burmese were basically left out of that. They the Indians were the workers in the factories, mm-hmm. and the British were the uh, CEOs and executives and engineers and everything like that. So the Burmese were basically just left to continue farming and doing yeah. agriculture, and were left out of not only the administration of the country, but within the rising uh, industry itself. Exactly. So now we move on to around 1942, mm-hmm. and we're in the midst of World War II. And Japan and Thailand, and I think that's something that people don't really understand, is that Thailand was a big Axis power of the time, one of the original power members as well. Right. So they decide to invade Burma. And what would their strategic being for invading Burma be? Well, India, of India. course. <laughs> so, um, But actually, that's interesting because uh, from a certain point of view, it's almost like the Burmese uh, invited them. So the way that that happened was uh, Aung San, and the Burmese nationalists, he was the head of the Burmese nationalists, or a nationalist group, the main nationalist group. Uh, he actually was in talks with the Japanese. And he and 30 comrades, that's the famous name of the group, actually were recruited by Colonel Suzuki uh, to Japan uh, and trained there, uh, essentially to bring about an independent Burma. So from their perspective, the Japanese didn't invade, they actually liberated 
uh, the country. Oh. However, in reality, it was yeah. an invasion. So we move on to 1943. The Commonwealth is in shambles right now. Right. And, and Churchill's deciding, who should I put in charge of the Southeast Asian campaign? And who he decides on is Lord Mountbatten. Mm. Now, can you just give us like, because he's probably one of the most influential leaders, not only just during World War II, but post-war as well within Southeast Asia when it came to to the British Commonwealth there. Mm. And just uh, give us like a little bit of like a roundup and like his influence at the time. Sure. Yeah, I mean, Lord Mountbatten, uh, before this, I mean, he really wasn't that significant mm. of a figure. I mean, basically. I'm pretty sure he was like an aristocrat within that had like some like ties to like a old like royal family type thing of course yeah, yeah. i mean the usual mm-hmm. um everyone with the lord title yeah. i believe he was an earl uh basically had some tie to the old aristocracy uh so that was basically his claim to fame before that and a lot of the british leadership in the army uh winston churchill included had some sort of uh like aristocratic or you know, some yeah. kind of tie like that, that uh, the leadership wasn't really meritocratic at that point. It was mm. mostly people who had born been born into that. But Mountbatten really proved himself uh, during mm. this time. And, I mean, he ended up being a brilliant general. I believe his technical title was Admiral <laughs> in the war. Uh, and he pretty much, as the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Southeast Asia, I mean, pretty much almost single-handedly uh, took back that area of the Indian Ocean, uh, of course, with support from the yeah. Americans. I mean, the Americans were driving the Japanese towards the Pacific yeah. uh, with their island hopping missions and all of that. I mean, essentially, the Japanese needed to go f- fight the Americans directly, mm-hmm. and Mountbatten and his forces were able to come in from behind. Now, I know Lord Mountbatten, most of his forces within Southeast Asia would be Indian troops. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm just wondering for the chain of command, it was always going to be a British officer, right, that was in charge of the Indian troops. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> always. always. That's how it's always going to be. Yeah, the okay. short answer. Yep. <laughs> so with that as well, we kind of move on. I just want to know, because we all know that since British Burma was colonized by the British, mm-hmm. like, and with that anti-British sentiment that existed there, how popular was like the Free State of Burma when it was established by uh, Young Sane? Yeah, so, I, you know, it's actually hard to say. Because, I mean, it was a very complicated time, of mm-hmm. course, and there aren't that many sources that uh, physically survive from that period. Yeah. But I imagine that the response was extremely positive uh, until people saw the devastation wrought by the Japanese directly. So uh, yeah. people were very, very excited about an independent Burma, and they were especially excited about Indians leaving. I mean, obviously, this trek out of the country uh, included almost one million, I believe, Indians. And so seeing that was almost their main joy. You know, it wasn't so much that they didn't even recognize almost that the British, they knew the British were at the top of their repression, but that was the most direct influence that they saw was from Indian administrators. Yeah. Interesting. Because just to go on of that is that since we have the provisional state of free India mm-hmm. that had its capital in Rangoon of the mm-hmm. time in exile, uh, for our viewers out there, the provi- provisional government of free India was the nationalist forces that fought for the Japanese against the Commonwealth and the Raj of India. Right. So, and it was a pretty sizable force of like 100,000 Indians. So I was wondering, was there any conflict between those two like public governments of Japan as they're both at the same capital? Right. So, yeah, no, I mean, we're looking at a lot of 
complicated stuff going on here. Uh, no, I mean, the, the Japanese government of Burma was run by the 30 comrades, these Burmese, and eventually uh, Bama, who was the mm-hmm. prime minister that was established under the independent Burmese state under the Japanese. And they all understood. I mean, them being educated law school graduates from Rangoon University or even from London understood the more complicated colonial dynamics going on here, that the British were actually in charge and that they were the ones that needed to be driven out. So, yeah, there was actually no conflict with the provisional Indian government uh, because they were essentially doing the same type of thing. Um, But, yeah, I mean, of course, people in Rangoon, like Burmese people, they didn't really understand what was going on at the top. Um, And so not only due to the devastation of the war, but also due to the martial law imposed by the Japanese, they just didn't want whatever was happening. (laughs) You know, it was obviously very confusing what was happening. They wanted an independent Burma. They wanted Burma to be independent from Indian and British influence, but they didn't want what was going on basically right now. They they didn't want... (laughs) See, that also leads to the fact is the Free State of Burma and the Japanese forces got right to the border of India, one province into India. And it's the real question is, is what stopped them from going further? Because I mean, you would think that as popular as the Free State of Burma was within Burma, why wasn't the Free State of India as popular as it was in India? Yeah, no, that's so I think the main thing in India was the power of the Indian National Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Gandhi's and Nehru's uh, influence, essentially. Uh, And they had sided with the British. Yeah. Uh, Because uh, with the Quit India campaign in uh, 1942, they had actually gotten an agreement from Churchill, a tentative agreement, (laughs) but an agreement that if they participated then India would be made independent after World War II. So they were supporting the British for that hope. For that hope of independence. So they didn't see the Japanese as being their real liberators. They still saw the British as like being future liberators from themselves. Exactly. Okay. And I mean, they had all the organizations. So whatever Gandhi did... Everybody else most followed. of the Indians would do. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, of course, there are these breakoffs in Rangoon, yeah. for example, who didn't trust the British, uh, understandably so. Yeah. Uh, and even after the war, the British didn't really want to give it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was mainly violence between Indians and Muslims, or uh, Hindus and Muslims, that ended mm-hmm. up leading to the British finally saying, it's not worth it to hold on to India. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, so that's the main reason. I mean, I think that India remained solid. And it was basically the Indian army that held back the Japanese in India because the British needed to focus their forces on the Nazis. Exactly. (laughs) A lot closer to their doorstep. Exactly, which we don't even realize. I mean, you don't even think about these other theaters when you think about, like, Dunkirk and uh, the Battle of Britain and everything like that. This is all happening at exactly the same Same time. time. So Churchill isn't, you know, too focused on, oh, my God, let's save Burma. You know, he just wants to hold on to India if he can and also save him his own country yeah. were there any resistance groups within burma that still fought like with that supported british like you know like oss troops so from what i've seen actually uh no because really? the nationalists um who ang san and all of his uh in- crew they essentially had organizing groups all the way down to the village level wow. and they were on the japanese side 
right until 1944. Right until the end. So they viewed it as, as long as their leadership said, this is good for us, we're free from British influence, they weren't going to fight back. And I mean, of course, there's like small insurgent resistance mm-hmm. here and there, just like I was saying with India, how yeah. there's like a small break off where certain groups don't agree. But for the majority, um, they were essentially behind their leaders who were with Japan. So we're nearing the end of the war here, and we're about to enter, like, British is coming back. Mm. They're, ta- they're sieging Rangoon in 1945. Right. They take the city. The provincial government is fleeing back to Japanese, to mostly Thailand, actually, very funnily enough. Mm. And now what is, like, the British plan for Burma following the defeat of Jap- Japan? So... If I could actually just take us back just a little yes, bit. Yes, of course. Um, so what I was talking about with 1944 uh, was that there was actually a shift. So once the Japanese had been in power, and we have to think about this as only a couple of years. So 1942, January, is when they first get there. 1943 is when they set up the provisional government under mm-hmm. Obama uh, the, of the Burmese Free State. And then... Throughout 1943 and into 1944, this is when a lot of this brutality is happening. You know, the Japanese are having a scorched earth, earth policy with oh, yes. all of the... Um, yeah, that's something uh, I read about is that they, they massacred villages just so that the British can have access to their, like, to their fields. It's exactly. Like, it's, it's, it's actually really crazy to read up about. It. It's horrible, too. Yep. Yeah, they went a full-on scorched earth policy. Yeah, and sometimes we forget about the people on the ground. Yeah. You know, when we're just we talking about like, numbers. We think of, like deaths as like, oh, it was soldiers are doing the ones dying. But no, in this case, it was mostly civilians right. on the crossfire. Exactly. Well, and so that's the point. Uh, so not only that, uh, and from the more pessimistic perspective or the more uh, less faith <laughs> yeah. in humanity perspective, Aung San switched at this point and his, yeah. and his party. And they essentially started getting into talks with Mountbatten and said, you know what? How about this? We're going to switch to your side but we want independence, just like India. This is mm-hmm. the same arrangement that they had with India. Uh, if we switch and we get the Burmese independence army back on the British side, we will help you out and get the Japanese out of here. And that's what ended up happening. He agreed to that, of course. Uh, and actually, the Burmese independence army was a significant effort in fighting the Japanese out, especially... In the final days of the war? Exactly, yeah. Oh, wow. uh, in 1944 into 1945. Yeah, so getting back to your question. Yeah. So after all of that, uh, just to emphasize the importance of the Burmese Independence Army as well and yeah. helping this out with this. But yes, uh, the British had reconquered the region by 1945, uh, and essentially their intention was to cut their losses. I mean, yeah. uh, Britain was devastated at this point by all of the uh, bombing of World War II and uh, the enormous expense of yeah. these wars. And, and I'm guessing with the rise of like Indian nationalism, there's no need for Burma anymore. Because I'm guessing the only point of Burma was as a buffer state. Well, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Uh, originally. And then the, there was also the economic benefits of yeah. the country as well. I mean, the rice market was booming before the war. Mm. Uh, but once they realized that all the infrastructure was destroyed, uh, once again, from the pessimistic perspective, I mean, the British just, just let figured, them deal with the destruction. Let them deal with that. Yeah. You know, we basically the fu- colonies were funded by internal taxes, taxes from the people there. But then if they ran out of those funds, it's the British taxpayer paying oh. for reconstruction and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. We just want out is basically what the British figured with okay. Burma. And they had already agreed to it. So uh, they figured after the war, there was almost immediate. Mountbatten was the acting head of government. Yeah. 
Uh, and there was kind of the assumption that he was going to start devolving power over to Aung San. Was there like this identity of a Burmese people? Because as we see today, with minority rights not being very recognized within the state of Myanmar, did that kind of play into effect of like, did they want this like ethno kind of state for the Burmese people? That's a great question. Thank you. Well, I mean, that's basically what my research is on. So, I mean, yes, <laughs> essentially is what my answer would be, or at least that's what I would argue. Uh, yeah. Throughout the course of the 1920s and 30s, especially during the Great Depression, this sense of common Burmese-ness uh, came about both because of their common Buddhist yeah. uh, heritage and also their ethnic difference with the Indians who were coming to settle into their country, yeah. as well as Chinese um, British, etc. Mm-hmm. And Muslims were made up 50% of the Indian population. So Islam Especially was actually... Especially on, uh, on the eastern border. Yes, exactly. Bangladesh. That's right. right. Yeah, so. right next to Bangladesh. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, uh, this large Muslim population, Islam was viewed as a major, major threat to Buddhist, I, I might even Buddhist say supremacy Burma. in Burma. Yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, so essentially that's what Aung San was trying to fight back against that a little bit. So that's actually that was actually a good transition with the Anti-Fascist People's Freedom League. He essentially was trying to go for a more equitable hmm, Burma. More one moderate. That, yes, one that wasn't under an ethnostate, essentially. And his enemies didn't like that. I mean, they thought, well, why don't we just go back to the Being free under the access exactly, yeah. of the Indians? Like, why? what are we doing here? So that's when Usa, who is a prominent nationalist, actually assassinated Aung San. Hmm. And then his replacement, Unu, was much, much more... He was in the same party, yeah. but he was much, much less interested in government. And it slowly began to transition towards that direction. Towards authoritarian type of government. Yeah, and uh, Francis Wade, actually, he wrote um, uh, Myanmar's uh, Enemy Within, uh, and it's about Muslims in Burma, and he actually argues that it was during World War II when the Rohingya fought with the British against the Japanese, that is when this major tension occurred. Yeah. And then afterwards, the Rohingya actually realized that they would be persecuted under the new Burmese regime, which was independent, and actually led a jihad against the Burmese government to join Bangladesh, East Pakistan, which was right on the other side of the border. border. So that uh, led to a lot of the issues that we see today. And then also an interesting thing post, uh, post-war is that when we have the Chinese Civil War, what happens from my research here is that a lot of Kuomintang, Kuomintang troops and their families retreated into the northern states of, of Burma. Mm-hmm. Well, at this, at this time, it's not Myanmar yet because we're no. like 1949 at this point. Yes. So yeah, uh, 1988 is when they changed the to Myanmar. Yep. So at this point, a lot of Kuomintang... Um, generals, their troops, and their families moved into northern Burma, and they actually started their own type of insurgent groups against the Burmese government, even though they were kind of like this nationalist Chinese party. So I think that's another weird thing is that there's a lot of nationalists. (laughs) Yes. A lot of nationalists. (laughs) And then also, could you go into more of like the communist insurrection as well? Because then you have this kind of thing where the nationalist insurrection is finding the communist insurrection against this nationalist government of Burmese people. (laughs) All just following a war where they came to fight and like liberate themselves from like the axis of evil, right? That's right. So, well, yeah, that's the thing. It's incredibly complicated. I mean, the axis of evil is a matter of perspective. I would yeah. even say. And I mean, of course, Japan, the Nazis, oh, of course, uh, Imperial Japan, and the Nazis and the fascist Italians were all 
extremely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can't argue that that can't wasn't argue. a very negative thing. But even afterwards, I mean, yes, there's a lot of nationalists running around. And nationalists, if there's one thing about them, only like their own group. Yes. So, I mean, that's not good to yes. have them fighting against each other. Um, so we have Muslim nationalists in the Rakhine state. We have the Burmese nationalists. We have hyper-Burmese nationalists who want, like, an ethno-state. Uh, and then we also have Chinese nationalists up north. Now, the thing happening with the uh, communists is, of course, uh, Mao wins in China yes, in 1949. And we have communist China just up north. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the nationalists are both, uh, the Kuomintang, are both fighting against... Mao in the north, but then also... Against the Burmese government in the south as they try and vie for their own power. That's right. Yeah, and Aung San was actually the founder of the Communist Party of Burma. Really? Yeah, in, uh, in the 1930s, I believe 1938. Wow. Yeah, so that's another thing. That's another strike he had going against him. I mean, of course, yeah. uh, the Americans were not going to be happy with any Communist Party being in power after World War II, especially with the beginnings and stirrings of the Cold War. Um, so a lot of Burmese recognize that just objectively. It's not good to have communists yeah. in power because of that. Um, and then, I mean, UNU essentially switched to a more socialist model, and what happened was drove out the communists from the government. So then okay. the communists basically became an insurgent group, just like the Rohingya and the Muslim groups in Rakhine, just like many of the smaller ethnic groups who all wanted to break off into their own nationalities. And then we also have communists running around in the sticks as yeah. well. So... Uh, essentially, there's just this massive civil war. Yeah, that's that transpires for 40 years, as yeah. you see. And what caused Burma to become so secluded in world politics and just the world itself? Because up until, I want to say, to 2010s, nobody could even visit the nation. Right. So, like, what, <laughs> so what caused this former, like, world, part of, like, the world commonwealth of the British Empire to become so secluded within its own borders? Well, I'm glad that you said the British Empire because actually I have a, an analogy, uh, which would be Brexit. I mean, uh, the problem with the EU, according to the people who are in support of Brexit, is that there's open borders. And so anyone who's in Europe can go to Britain freely, yeah. in theory. So there's a problem today with, of course, Syrian refugees and refugees from Africa and everything like that coming mm-hmm. into Britain. And that's why they made that decision. Well, think about Burma. And I mean, think about the fact that their main issue before World War II was in the Indian population coming in and taking all of their wealth, according to yeah. their perspective, and arguably was the case. Um, and so Aung San was assassinated for that reason. He was assassinated because he would have been too open to that type of model, free trade, open markets, and, the, well, maybe not open markets. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he was a communist, but I mean, opening to the rest of the world. world. And it was these more nationalist groups that ended up getting the say in that, and they completely closed off. We don't want anyone coming in. and Because they saw what happened with decades before. That's right. And with free trade, I mean, the same type of thing could happen even without immigration. So an American business could easily buy up rice industries in Burma. And if use they have... Indian labor and not even employ the Burmese, right? Exactly. Just like the British were doing. Yeah. Exactly. In theory. So what they figured was that we're going to close off from everyone else and we're just going to have our own economy and we're just going to do our own thing here. And that ended up being extremely disastrous for uh, Burma. Yeah. And then especially the military regime began yeah. in 1962 and they doubled down on that. So, so... And the military regime technically still is not... I mean, now it's... it's it's still in power. It's, it's, it's this weird dynamic that exists where they have everything that seems like a democracy. Right. But the military gets allotted parliament seats. 
they That's get right. ultimate veto over any decisions the government makes. Right. It's a very interesting dynamic. And I think why I wanted to do this is that mm -hmm. I think all of this kind of forms within this 10-year period between pre-World War II and post-World War II. That's I think right. it was a very transformative time for Burma, and I think it's what it shaped it to be today. So yeah. that's all the time we have for today. So thank you all so right. much for joining us today. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a pleasure. No, thank you for having me. This was good. You're listening to Brainwaves here on Northeastern Radio. That was Gatsby Smith exploring the state of Burma with Matthew Bowser. And up next, we have Jake Willis interviewing Madison Mittenis, president of Northeastern's Entrepreneurs Club, discussing the state of entrepreneurship around the globe and within university campuses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Brainwaves, the academic podcast brought to you by Northeastern Radio. My name is Jake, and joining us for this first session today is Madison um, Mittenis? Mittenis. Mittenis, the um, head of the Entrepreneurs Club here at Northeastern University. Yeah. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. So um, thanks for joining us here. And entrepreneurship is definitely a big thing these days. I think a lot of students are attracted to it just because of the freedom and openness that entrepreneurship provides students. But I think a lot of students want to get involved in that way. But a lot of the issues that come up is, well, I want to be my own boss, but I lack an idea. You, like We always see these great things on Shark Tank and other yeah. programs like that. So what would you say is a, one of the best ways to come up with an idea? Maybe not even start a business, but just something you think people need or you could buy or sell. Yeah, so I think the best way to come up with an idea is to be observant of everything around you and for me if I were to start my own business I'd want it to be something that I'm really passionate about so I'm really into music and media and film so I would be looking more in those types of areas and so I encourage students coming through the Entrepreneurs Club to explore their passions rather than just trying to start something quick just to start a business and be your own boss and everything like that like if you find something that you're super passionate about it'll be effortless to start a business because you'll just be so excited to do so. Right. Um, so would you say that most of the students that enter the entrepreneurship club don't have an idea when they first start? I'd say at the beginning, some of them come in with an idea and half of them don't have an idea, but they kind of change their idea once they start going through industry analysis and market research and they kind of pivot their original idea to something still similar in what they came in passionate about. But I think when someone comes in with an idea, it's rare that they leave with that same idea. Right. And what you just talked about there, you know, the evolution and that it's pretty rare that the idea you start with ends up becoming something that you would present to hypothetical investors and things like that. What, what, stage or what part of the process do you think is when students really begin to realize that their idea, you know, they might think it's great, but then they start to realize, okay, we might need to change a few th little things or add or get rid of part of it in order to make it something more viable? Yeah, I think it probably happens once they start breaking down the process of what it takes to actually solve that problem. And it's more likely than not a lot more complex than you originally thought. And so rather than trying to solve a problem that's going to save the world, you kind of find a segment of that original problem or idea that you actually take forward with 
to start a company. Right, like finding the niche. Yeah, exactly. So another thing, you know, that we talked about this a bit earlier with entrepreneurship is this idea that people love of being your own boss, kind of just going out there and paving your own way. But a lot of people also form teams, whether it's just two people, three people, or maybe a whole group. Um, Do you think it's more common for people to try and go the lone wolf path or do you see people eventually grouping up and trying to like you know make a collective of brains to get this something rolling yeah i think it really depends on the personalities Mm -hmm. at hand because you don't want to kind of pair two people that just have clashing personalities and have them run a company together because we've had a lot of speakers come in and they talk about that your job you spend more time than anything doing your job so your co-founder is like getting married and so you have to take that approach of like I'm going to be spending all this time with this co-founder but I also encourage students at the beginning to not take it so seriously and be like oh like I need to think five years down the line about who I bring on to my team right now it is important but it won't make or break your team right at the beginning but I've also heard a lot of people from the VC and investor side of things say that they prefer to invest in a company that has two or more Mm -hmm. people on the founding team. And that's because that proves that people like your idea and that you can work well with others. But I've also heard people say that they want to invest in the entrepreneur. And so like invest in the entrepreneur rather than investing in the company. And so if you are alone, like that's fine. So it really depends on the type of investment you're trying to get and also just what your personality is. Right, yeah. Entrepreneurship can often have like a lot of big egos and Mm -hmm. philosophical differences. Um, Going back to what you were saying about um, thinking far in the future and everything, you know, a lot of people, a lot of students on Northeastern think, oh, I want to own my own business. But then comes all the obligations of still being a regular student on campus going to classes having a social life yada 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 so where do you see like do you think like there's a good healthy balance between people who like want to seriously run a business while also still being a college student like do you think that's possible or I think it's definitely possible I think when you make a decision to do anything that's a huge time commitment like being the president it's a big time commitment running this program because it's like a company basically and so (laughs) every time I say yes to dedicating like four hours in a row to e-club I'm saying no to something else and so I think it's important for students starting a business to also look at that type of mindset as well you probably are going to have to sacrifice something and so it might be your social life you might be staying up all night a lot you might your grades might slip you might have to kind of put things off on your company for a little while to dedicate more time to the other aspects of your life. But I think definitely understanding that it's not going to be equal. Some days it's going to be you're completely dedicated to working on the company all day, and other days you're going to take the day off and just have fun. And so I think it's more of a, like, it's not really a balance. It's more of like a back-and-forth harmony of balancing everything that you're obligated to do and also doing things that you love as well awesome yeah um definitely you know you gotta be passionate about whatever your idea is if you want to seriously take it to the next level exactly i'm 
have you ever ran into any situations with maybe with an entrepreneur who kind of, you know, thought they had maybe the best idea, but you could tell wasn't willing to like go all the way with it? Yeah, I think for, I can't think of like a specific person that has Oh, done, I wouldn't yeah. ask you to name specifics. Yeah. Um, I think especially through the Husky Startup Challenge, we help students come with an idea and go through five boot camps of really diving deep, breaking apart that problem and how to solve it and how to build a business model and a prototype around it. But then if you go through all of those steps, you're ready to go into Idea the Venture Accelerator. And I think people stop after the Husky Startup Challenge when they realize they don't have that time to take it to the next level. But I don't think that's a failure on being an entrepreneur. I think it's just you figured out, you learned a lot from that process, but maybe you'll try again later or start with a new idea next time. Right. So the Husky Startup Challenge is a good way to measure, you know, are you able to achieve that balance between wanting to seriously try and run your own company and be a good student at the same time? Yeah. And, you know, have you ever seen people maybe at the Husky Startup Challenge kind of fade away from the entrepreneur scene and then come back later, um, maybe with a new idea or just like a revigorated passion? Yeah, absolutely. Like we've had people excel in the program and make a good company, learn a lot about it, don't really take it through idea, but they come back again later, like more ready than ever to do it again because you learn so much diving that deep into the problem or idea that you're trying to escalate. And so, yeah, we see people go really head first into the entrepreneurship ecosystem, take a step back, and then come right back in. And that's we totally encourage that in E Club and all of the organizations. Right. And entrepreneurship is something that certainly isn't age restricted in any mm -hmm. way. And even though most students in Northeastern kind of fall into the same age group, um, do you think, you know, it's still possible even decades down the line if you want to start your own business, it's something doable? Yes, absolutely. My mom is actually an entrepreneurship professor on campus and like, obviously, I'm interested in entrepreneurship, too. <laughs> and so we've talked about starting our own business together and stuff like that. And she's older than me. I'm not going <laughs> to disclose her age, but Safe she's choice. never started her own business before. But she's an expert in the field. And so I don't think it's ever too late to start it. Yeah. And um, going to academics for a second, you know, on your profile on the website, you yourself are not actually an entrepreneurship major. Yeah, I'm it's not. a it's a minor for you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I first read that, I thought that was a little surprising. But um, I think if you look at entrepreneurship, you know, you take um, you don't it doesn't necessarily have to be something you focus on 100% of the time. You just have to maybe love one area and think about, oh, I want to start a business in that. I, I myself, have found a lot of people who um, aren't doing majors in entrepreneurship, but there are a lot of people I know who have minors in entrepreneurship. So what would you, do you think like that's maybe something to shoot for? Like, do you have to be a business, do you think being a business student is required to be quote unquote successful at entrepreneurship or can it come from anywhere? I don't think you have to be a business student in order to be a really great business person. It's entrepreneurship and business is a mindset and like 
by studying other fields and studying in different colleges at Northeastern, the beauty of doing that is that we have all these entrepreneurship-related organizations on campus. And so you can be super skilled in the industry that you're trying to solve a problem in. Like, let's say it's something in the music business and mm -hmm. you are trying to develop a technology. Um, you know the industry so well, and the beauty of being at school trying to solve that problem and start a business, there's you could be sitting next to a business person. You could be sitting next to someone who's really good at sound engineering. And so that's great to be on campus and find those types of people that you can form a team where it kind of fits like a mosaic and it all works together. Um, but, yeah, I don't think you have to just be able to crunch numbers to be able to be a successful business person. Right. And going into that, you know, crunching numbers business, you know, when you first maybe write down this genius idea on paper, it sounds like a really good idea. So let's say you go through the Husky Startup Challenge, you make it all the way through with this idea you love. But then you suddenly realize like, okay, I've had this idea, I've whittled it and perfected it. And I've even gotten some investors to take notice. But then you think about, like, oh, my goodness, the logistics of it. Like, let's say it's something physical. I actually have to talk to, like, a factory and get this produced and shippers and get this out. And for a 20, 21-year-old, that seems absolutely daunting. Yeah. So what would you say are the best ways to kind of a twofold question? One um figure out this whole mess of just pure logistics and to um what can the e-club do to help you out in any way if they can um i think the e-club can help out with those problems by like we're very connected to other entrepreneurship related organizations on right. campus too so the entrepreneurship ecosystem is called Mosaic. And mm -hmm. so the e-club is that entry point where students come with ideas and they kind of want to take it to the next step. Mm -hmm. And so we can help you identify where to go next. And so we have the venture accelerator called Idea, the product, the product development studio called Generate, and the design studio called Scout. And so if you need anything on those levels, we can point you in those directions and we know those organizations and the students that run it so well. So we can help you identify and solve those needs. For the more logistical issues of like finding manufacturers and getting the investments and all of that stuff, IDEA, the Venture Accelerator, really helps you get those connections and get figure out how to plan for those issues in the future. But it's definitely tricky navigating those waters right. alone and or just as a young person on a new team <laughs> of founders trying to solve this problem that you're really passionate about. Right. It's a um it's a daunting task. Mm -hmm. And so how does um how does idea basically like function just like can anyone come up and say I have this amazing idea let's create a business or is there some sort of review process um, what exactly does the team how does the team work yeah so <clears throat> the organization structure uh, for a venture going through idea is there are four stages of the process so there's ready set go and invest and mm -hmm. so with the Husky startup challenge 
we that's our gateway to idea. So it covers that ready stage curriculum that you could alternatively do with idea, but not guided. So you finish that curriculum of validating your idea, industry analysis, market research, doing surveys, prototyping, and pitching at demo day. And mm-hmm. that pitch sets you up to do your solution design pitch at idea to move on to the set stage. And so there is a process of moving on to the next stages and you get linked up with coaches and work with the management team to work on the idea and get ready to go on to the next stage. And this is available to all Northeastern students. Yeah, and even alumni and faculty, if you have Northeastern roots from my understanding, you can get involved (laughs) in idea. Awesome, fantastic. And that just goes to show, you know, no matter how old or young you might be, if you have any way to get to Northeastern, there's uh, awesome entrepreneurial opportunities waiting for you. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, just a couple more. So entrepreneurship, the Entrepreneurship Club has a lot of really inter- interesting ventures. There, are, There's a Tuesday speaker every week, and you even have some treks and opportunities for students to go out mm-hmm. into Boston to see some local startups. Um I guess my question would be, has there ever been like one in particular that really stood out, like one one speaker or one trek that you or someone you knew went on and just, just absolutely shook how you see um, entrepreneurship or a challenge in some sort of way? Yeah, absolutely. There was... Um, a moment when I was a freshman and I joined the Entrepreneurs Club. I just attended this Tuesday Speaker Series and I went to one of them and the woman speaking was saying that, well, we had the crowd there at the speaker and Mm -hmm. one person got up and left. And right as that person left, the speaker was talking about how she just left a big corporation where it was a big deal for her to leave and start her own company but the next day, they just filled her seat and replaced her as if she was never there. Wow. And that really shook her that she really felt like she had an impact in the company. And then as soon as she was gone, she was easily replaced. And I think that night, I went home and called my mom was like, I'm changing my major. Like, I, wow. I want to be studying media. I want to be studying film because I'm passionate about it. And I'm just totally, I don't want to feel like... I'm just being replaced ever. And like when you're creating art, that's long lasting. It doesn't get swapped out for something new. Right. And my mom was like, yeah, go for it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Like I was all like built up to say that. But you had that, a whole case you were right to present. Yeah. I was like, this is why I need to study this. But she was like, yeah, go for it. And I'm very grateful for that. But it didn't even really change me to be like, I want to start my own company. But it totally changed the way that I viewed my career and my life and everything. And I thought that that was really interesting that just a club event could do that for me. And that's why I continued to just get more and more involved in this club. But we have students go on tech treks or go to speaker series and they go up to the speakers after. And then the next year they tell us that they co-opt there. And so that's crazy that an event that we put on really helps someone's stepping stone in their career. And so it is really rewarding watching these little moments that really impact the students that and the members of the club, that it totally impacts their life and career. Wow. 
that's that's amazing. Yeah. Just um, and I've been to a handful of those speakers events and, um, you know, just the variety is really in, just insane. How many different people you get and the stories are all just very unique. And I think no matter how many you go to, you come away with a different lesson maybe each time mm-hmm. all right so we're nearing the end so madison tell us what's happening at e-club these days yeah so the husky startup challenge is in full swing we're about to take about 20 or 25 ventures and help them build their ideas and get ready for the pitch at demo day and we have some tech trucks planned but we don't have the logistics down yet for exactly where we're going but um, we have some cool speakers lined up. We're going to have Amy, who is a past president of Amazon Robotics, come in Ooh. towards the end of the semester. Um, yeah, so we have some good speakers going on, and we're looking forward to interacting with a lot more student entrepreneurs from across all the different industries at Northeastern. And if people want to find out more about the Entrepreneurship Club, where should they go? Yeah, they should follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. <laughs> um, it's uh, e Club NEU for Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. Instagram is NEU underscore E Club. And our website is northeastern.edu backslash entrepreneurs. So that's where anyone can find out how to get involved and see what we have going on. All right, Madison, thank you so much for coming in today and talking to all of us about the Entrepreneurship Club and Student Entrepreneurship here on campus. Yes, thank you so much for having me. You just heard Jake Willis talk to Madison Mittenness about entrepreneurship within university campuses and around the globe here on Brainwaves, WRBB 104.9. That concludes our episode of Brainwaves for today. Thank you so much for listening in. If you're interested in hearing some more Northeastern podcasts, stay tuned to our radio station. We have plenty of awesome other topics, including politics, Boston, and students of Northeastern. Have a great day. This episode of Brainwaves was hosted by Jake Willis and Gatsby Smith. Our producers are Catherine Garcia, WRBB's news director, and Dan Lin, WRBB's general manager. This episode of Brainwaves was mixed and edited by Benjamin Harold. Special thanks to the WRBB leadership staff, Northeastern University, and Northeastern Student Activity Fee for funding this podcast. Our theme music is W by Mary Getty. Head to wrbbradio.org where you can find the latest episodes of all of our podcasts, listen to our internet live stream, and read up on the latest music reviews. And make sure to follow us on all social media at WRBB Radio. Thanks for tuning in.